are so excited to continue these conversations through 2023. And we are honored that you're continuing to join us as we continue to do the work of anti-racism, the beloved community and cultural competency and everything that comes along with what it means to be an inclusive and anti-racist church. So with that said, happy new year. Uh, today is Wednesday afternoon, January 4th, 2023. And in today's webinar, we will be discussing the intersectionality of race and ethnicity in the Latinx experience. We wanna encourage you to write down your questions in the Q&A box or in the chat, and we will answer them at the end of our webinar. And as a reminder, our webinar's goal is to bring awareness to the anti-racism work in the Florida Conference, to equip and support you as you integrate anti-racism into your ministry, into your lives. And we believe that this is an act of discipleship. This moment right here is how we love God and we love neighbor. So my name is Erwin Lopez, as shared. I am a member of the Beloved Community, and I have the great honor of introducing our guest speaker for today, Professor and Reverend Esteli Ramos. So he's okay if you call him professor or pastor. And we're colleagues of a sort. Um, he works at the University of Central Florida in the School of Social Work, and he's also an associate pastor for Joy Metropolitan Community Church here in the Orlando area. He completed his MDiv at Candler School of Theology, where he focuses in the, he focused on the area of liberation theology and pastoral care. Reverend Ramos has focused his ministry and outreach to the Latino, Latina LGBTQ community in Central Florida, and his many years of social practice, social work practice, and teachings have focused on community development, public policy, and social intervention with marginalized populations, which have included youth at risk street gang members, refugees, immigrants, and undocumented persons. He has an extensive background working with grassroots groups, providing a host of training from cultural competency to street gang intervention. And I just heard that he's also leading these conversations on surviving religious abuse. So we will share his information after our webinar and you can contact him um, and I believe that he's going to bring a lot to the conversation and he's really going to expand the work that we do. So I'm excited to, to have him here. So without further ado, Professor, thank you for coming and the floor is yours. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And I have to tell you that um, as a as a Candler graduate, um, it feels good to be with my Methodist family. United Methodist, they taught me to say, and not just Methodist. Um, um, because I, I have to say that um, in my process of ministry, uh, it became very important for me to find a safe space um, where I can um, connect my sexuality with my faith. And that was a new experience being raised in the Puerto Rican Pentecostal Church, which I don't know if you know exactly what that uh, experience is like, but it's more like the Black sanctified experience. Um, and so it was really hard to reconcile. And I have to say that Candler was my healing space. When I first walked into Emory University at the age of 55, after teaching on faculty um, for almost 15 years, um, it was hard to become a student again, let alone a seminary student. Uh, but I must say that the love I, I received um, from the United Methodist Church, and I ended up doing my pastoral internship. Um, at, at, at a Methodist church in downtown Orlando. And my experience was just phenomenal. So it feels good. I, I feel connected with you, although I've never met you. 
Um, so thank you for having me and I'm looking forward to sharing with you um, these concepts of the intersectionality of race, ethnicity, and the Latinx experience. Before I begin the presentation, I do want to talk to you about the word Latinx because I think it's important for everyone um, to understand the history of it and, and, and what exactly it means today. Um, the Latin community basically identifies in three ways in the United States of America. The first being Hispanic, the second being Latino, Latina, and the third, the newer one, um, being Latinx. The concept of Hispanic was first developed um, by the Nixon administration in the early 70s, and the purpose of it was to form an exploratory committee to help define a population that was rapidly growing in the United States. Um, and so what he did, um, he went to uh, Miami and selected a group of Cubans that he knew personally, and these Cuban men basically uh, came to Washington and formed this exploratory committee. We came up with the word Hispanic. Um, in counteract for that, many of the brownspeople movement in um, California, Texas, and in New York um, um, protested that uh, because they felt that it was not a definition of who we are as a people in this country uh, because Hispanic is only those of Spanish-speaking origin, and it was omitting a large group of um, persons from Brazil who we also consider a part of our family and do not speak Spanish, and other places like Belize who uh, speaks predominantly English. So the whole concept of Latino came and Latino consciousness was born um, in the 80s um, as a result of Dr. Felix Padilla, a sociologist who wrote the famous book called Latino Consciousness. So this gave way for the Latino movement and then Latinos and Latinas began to identify with that term Come later on, mainly Gen Z and millennials began to um, challenge the concept of gender in the language. If um, you know anything about Spanish, is that Spanish is very gender driven. Everything is either feminine or masculine. Um, and so a lot of persons who were looking to be inclusive to those who may be binary or transgender um, were really fighting the concepts of Latino, Latina. And so they developed the concept of Latinx. Latinx becomes complicated in the sense that those who have survived the Latino movements in this country felt that, um, that their voice was being taken away because the whole concept of Latino Latina was to force the, the US person acknowledging us to acknowledge us in our Spanish or in our Latin origin, um, either Portuguese or um, Spanish. And so that's a source of debate today. I use all three terms interchangeably um, depending on who I'm speaking with and where I'm at. Um, I've learned when I'm speaking at a Puerto Rican forum to say Latino. Um, I've learned when I'm speaking at UCF campus to say Latinx. I think for our sake of conversation today, any three of those terms are totally acceptable. Um, but I just wanted you to have a, a short history of understanding the use of the word Latina, Latino, or Latinx. Um, so today I'm, I'm excited to speak to you about one of the areas that I'm very passionate about, and it's the whole concept of the intersectionality of race and, um, and ethnicity in the Latinx experience. Um, so intersectionality was a, a term originally coined by the Black feminists in the 1980s, and the concept of intersectionality itself was first introduced in the legal studies led by Black feminist scholar Kimberly Crenshaw who used the term in a pair of essays that she wrote in 1989 and 1991. What began to happen in the women's movement um, in this era 
was that a lot of black feminist women who were fighting for women's rights were having a struggle in understanding that a lot of the white women in the feminist movement were not being empathetic to the issues of the black community. Then they will go into the black community and find that a lot of the community leaders, specifically a lot of men, um, were not being um, connected with the, or being or empathizing with women and the women experience. So it was there where she began to say there's these different intersectional identities that come together to help define me as a black woman who's also fighting for social justice. And so the whole concept behind intersectionality is uh, theoretically to form uh, a, a format that allows you to explore and understand the, the oppression of um, black women within society um, that exists um, both in the different intersections of oppression that come together. So the whole concept of race, gender, sex, class, um, ability, uh, nationality, citizenship, religion, and body type become concepts later on evolve into intersectionality as, as which we begin to realize that as persons of color or as um, sexual minorities, we may not necessarily fit into an all concept that either I, for example, as a Puerto Rican, am Puerto Rican, but I'm also an openly gay man. How do the two come together to help define me is what intersectionality is all about. Also, in addition, I strongly believe my spirituality is a very big part of my life, and I, my Christianity is a very big part of my life. I love the Lord. I love Jesus. I love the Bible. I love the church, uh, but the church is not accepting me as an openly queer person. So how did I form that intersectionality to help my identity, to fight the oppressions that I experienced on all fronts and not just one front? So the concept of me at one moment being a Puerto Rican and the next moment being a Christian or the next moment being um, an openly gay man are, are concepts that I no longer live by, but in intersectionality, I believe bringing them together helps me fully define myself um, to find my liberation against oppression. Now, Crenshaw challenged the notion of racism, as with any isms, um, by saying that they're simply not here by chance, right? That these are social constructs that are formed by groups in power to oppress and marginalize groups outside of the power structure. So like, for example, when we look at the concept of racism, um, racism is a lot more than whether you like or dislike black people. Right, racism is about race. The race that's in power uses their identity um, to come and oppress and marginalize persons of other races, in this country mainly being uh, persons of, 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 of African descent. And so that whole concept is a concept of racism. So how do we combat the fact that African-Americans have been excluded from the market economy, have been excluded from employment, has been, have been excluded from fair housing. All these different issues are, are the battlefronts of racism. Um, the same thing ends up happening with heterosexism, right? Heterosexism is when the heterosexual community comes together to form public policy that oppresses LGBTQ persons, um, rather it be their ability to access education, their ability to access housing, et cetera. So these whole concepts of coming together um, and understanding how these oppressions work in these different groups is what intersectionality is all about. So I want to share with you the concept of intersectionality within the Latino experience. 
Um, and in order to do that, we have to understand the Latin definition of race because mistakenly, um, many Latinos have been identifying in the U.S. Census um, as quote unquote Hispanic white. Interesting concept, right? Because the truth of the matter is that not only are most Latinos either biracial or triracial, um, most Latinos basically have a different um, form of approaching race historically and culturally as we do with religion, right? Latin America never had a Protestant Reformation and it still, and it still has it, right? The Catholic Church was and still is in control of Latin America. So their understanding of Christianity will be totally different. So when we look at the concept of race, we begin to see that um, we're forced to choose when we fill out the U.S. Census, we're forced to choose Hispanic white or Hispanic black, because that's what America understands has race. Well, the truth of the matter is that I, as a Puerto Rican, I'm triracial. I definitely has first, I have First Nation Taino in me, um, which is what you would call Native American in the United States. I have African descent in me because my ancestors were slaves forced into the island by Spain. Um, and then I have some sort of Spanish identity um, because of the simple fact that I also have descendancy from Spain, which basically research shows that most of the descendancy of Spain in the Caribbean and Latin America are Southern Iberian, which is different from Northern Iberian, right? Because actually we're descendants of the Moors, which makes us again, what? Northern African. Uh-oh. There's a problem here, right? Because the truth is that most Latinos on average range only from, according to, to um, uh, genetic research, most Latinos range on an average from three to 8% of what we call Caucasia. So this has become a challenging notion for those of us fighting for intersectionality to say, stop putting white down in the U.S. Census. Because the truth of the matter is very few of you are white, especially if you're Puerto Rican, Dominican, or Cuban. I mean, and, and, if, and if you're from Latin America, your, your, your probability rate of having a high First Nation, whether it's Inca, Maya, Aztec, um, is, is extremely high, extremely higher um, than just the concept of white. So how do we include those definitions of ourselves? It's what the Latino experience of intersectionality becomes all about. So we've been fighting this front a lot to define ourselves as no, we're not a race, we are multiracial. If you're gonna Im impose on us the concept of race, I have to empower and understand myself as an African, as a descendant of Spain, which is really Northern African, and as a First Nation Taino, because that's what my culture is. I have no um, connection with what they would call Caucasian, um, in the racial experience. Now, one of my favorite books in life, if you haven't read it yet, you should, um, is Isabel Wilkerson's Cast. I, I have been doing research on race, and I have to tell you that her opening chapters on tracing the history of race is the best I have ever read. Now, here's what's interesting about the concept white. What I find very interesting about the concept white is that Originally, the concept white or the concept of a pure race uh, comes from the Roman Empire and was basically a view of those who were from, from the German tribes because the German tribes would not submit to Roman rule and were considered very nomadic um, and very powerful in their fighting to stop Rome. So they were looked at um, 
as a as a as a power race of people that were more powerful. It's not until the late 1800s, the early 1900s, that even the French are allowed to call themselves race in the history of the United States. And it's not until the 30s and the 40s that groups like the Italians are included in the concept of race. So here we come into the new millennial and there is an attempt to include Hispanic into the category of race. And the fight for intersectionality is no, be proud of my African roots. I am 28% from Nigeria, celebrate that in me. I am also 26% um, First Nations Taino, celebrate that in me. And the rest of me is Southern Iberian. So how do I understand my categorization of races? I don't, I don't have a single race according to how US history defines race. I'm mostly racially defined. Um, and I have to be true to that if I'm going to understand my Puerto Rican experience as a person from the Caribbean um, who is more connected to a Haitian than I am to someone from Spain. I have more in common when I hang around with my Haitian sisters and brothers here in Orlando than I do when I go to my wonderful friend who may be Italian American. I mean, the similarities between Haiti, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico are incredible that I never discovered till I moved here to Central Florida. So that's whole, the whole concept of understanding race in Latin America uh, becomes important for us to understand it through the fact that we are mutually and racially connected. And then in, 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 in addition to the racial identity, um, there are also the concepts of the fact that Latin America is not one you know, global type community. There is a huge difference in this large mass of land once occupied by Spain and Portugal um, that makes one very different. Um, those from the Caribbean have a strong African influence in their culture, with their music, with their foods. Um, I can go to Nigeria and see elements of Puerto Rican food in Nigeria. When I when I met with my Nigerian friends in their home, I'm like, oh my God, we eat this. It's called bianda. We eat this. And they're like, well, it's from Africa, right? And so the slaves brought it in and today we eat it in a Puerto Rican restaurant here. So we may be very different in our, in our culture than someone, let's say, from Mexico or Central America that has a very strong First Nation experience. We do not eat corn products. Very rarely do we eat corn products. And yet they're very strong in the First Nation experience of Mexico and um, Central America and parts of, of Northern South America. So we're very different in how we approach life and how we understand music and how we understand the arts. And all this becomes important to my intersectionality experience. Um, now, I do want to try to stay within my time frame to give us a chance to have dialogue in here. So I do want to add is that not only are we different um, from our countries, but we also have a lot in common with each other. That not to say um, that as a Puerto Rican, a Dominican, or a Cuban, it is imperative that I acknowledge my Haitian, my Jamaican, um, my, my Virgin Island family members who are also a part of my experience. So most of us say, you know what, keep the race concept. It doesn't really work with us um, and help me identify myself in terms of my culture and my roots. Now, I do want to say in closing um, that new changes started to come in 2020. For most of the history of the census since the 80s, um, over 80% of the Hispanics 
um, in this country identified as race white when they were forced. And it was basically introduced by the Clinton administration in the 90s that made us choose between Hispanic white and Hispanic black. That I'm very proud to say um, that, that the Gen Z community has rapidly changed that. Um, and millennials, later millennials has also rapidly changed that as they begin to identify with um, African-based cultures in this country and First Nation-based cultures in this country. Um, we, we began to see ourselves in our black sisters and brothers and politically and socially began to unify. One of the things I always say um, when I'm speaking in, in queer spaces here in Orlando is that when you see a Latino gathering in Florida, um, you tend to see a large African-American and Black Caribbean gathering with them. And that's what Pulse Massacre was all about. If you look at Pulse and, and the victims of Pulse, there was a large number of Black Caribbean and African-American persons there because Gen Z and millennials are changing, are reconstructing this whole concept of race and are beginning to identify with their different parts and understanding um, who they are. And so as a result of this, um, something happened in the 2020 changes. And what ended up happening in the 2020 changes is that um, for the first time ever, 53% um, of the Hispanic community identified as white. That's a huge drop, that's a 30% drop. Um, and as we began to investigate it more, I'm very proud to say as of last year, the Biden administration has dropped the concept of white Hispanic or black Hispanic and are now have put in the choice for us in the upcoming census um, to either choose between Hispanic or Latino um, and no longer forcing us to fit ourselves into a category. So in a nutshell, in conclusion, this whole concept of intersectionality is really leading to a positive change in our community um, as we learn to be more inclusive for gender, um, more inclusive for sexual orientation, more inclusive for race and identity. Um, and I'm looking forward to see what Gen Z and millennials may have um, for the future of the Latinx community in this country. That about concludes my time. So I'll for questions or conversation. Great job, Professor. Thank you so much for sharing. And you know, the first thing, one of the first things that came to mind for me was as a Latino, Hispanic, was filling out these forms and yeah. getting to that section where I felt like I didn't have a, an option, right? Because it was rather white or black, or sometimes it was like mixed or biracial. And I was sat there and I thought to myself, what do I, what do I fill out? And I said, well, if they're, if they're not considering it, then I'm gonna go ahead and click mixed or biracial because I knew that I have this intersectionality in my ethnicity and in, in my ancestry. And so I'm glad you, you pointed that out because it was something that stuck out as you were sharing. But as, as a pastor, I, I wanna ask you this question to kind of bring these, these two concepts together because you're, you're, you work in the church like we do. Absolutely. And so I wanna ask you, how is this forming your pastoral work? I think about the members of our conference, you know, most of our leaders are, are white males. Um, and, you know, a lot of our conference is opening up to having these conversations. And so I, I wonder how does this intersectionality 
play a role in your pastoral work? That's a great question. Um, I, I have to say it's the same thing or the same experience with the Metropolitan Community Church. Um, we have churches all over the world and about 90, maybe 80% of its leadership is white. Um, it, it's a big problem in the church. Um, um, I think the way it has affected my approach to uh, pastoral care um, is really giving acknowledgement to diversity and differences and racism and hidden biases and all those different things that go on in our lives. Um, I've been known to challenge it in, in my context. You know, the moment I smell something um, that's uncomfortable, I'll stop the person and say, okay, you know what? Um, that's not cool. Um, and you need to expand your horizon. I think it's a little harder for us because most LGBTQ people who may be white would never consider themselves racist uh, because they're oppressed themselves. Um, and so I'm like, no, one has nothing to do with the other. And you have to be aware of your own biases and racist attitudes, just like any other person has to. Um, so I, I think it's affected it in that. But the second way that I feel that it has affected me is my calling to my Latin and communities of color. I'm right now in the process, I've announced to our board um, and to our senior pastor that I'm right now in the process of doing a startup church in Kissimmee. I'm gonna launch out by faith. We got no money, all we got is love for Jesus. <laughs> so we're going to launch out to Kissimmee. We're gonna form a Latin band um, and we're gonna open up a worship in the best way we know how. Uh, because I think, it's, I think the two go hand in hand um, but it's important for us to empower our communities because if we don't, no one else will. And so um, that's where I'm at right now. So that's the two huge effects it's had, um, defining how I preach and defining how I reach out to the community. That's great. I was especially wondering about people in the community that you, you have offered pastoral care to um, in terms of in terms of racism and, and and so I guess what I'm trying to say is as a pastor can you talk a little bit about the racism experience from Latinos from Latin, the Latinx and what kind of pastoral counseling and stories you have experienced in terms of how Latinos experience racism can you talk a little bit about that Absolutely. I, 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 I think one of our biggest problems is that um, we've been taught to accept it and to be quiet. Um, I, coming from Puerto Rico, um, since I was a little boy, um, my father always used to tell me, don't stir the pot. Um, and my, my, you know, we're, we're U.S. citizens. You should be grateful. I remember coming home from college um, when I was an undergraduate at Northeastern University and um, came home uh, to basically talk. I remember Dr. King's birthday. Um, there, there was a national fight to celebrate Dr. King's birthday and it wouldn't get approved. So yes, I'm talking about the 80s. Um, and um, and I, I remember coming home and um, really debating this and my father telling me to be quiet. You should be grateful. You just got, because I was accepted to the University of Chicago, you just got a graduate, a full scholarship to the University of Chicago. You should be grateful. You're ungrateful. I go, Daddy, that has nothing to do with it, right? It's not, I mean, I'm an American citizen. I have a right to speak up. So we've been taught to be quiet. And I think that's a big problem for us today in the church. Um, we're taught to respect. Um, don't offend our white leaders. 
Um, no matter what denomination you may be in, I think that's an ingrained concept. I saw it a lot in Atlanta with the Latin community. Um, in, in the Methodist Church, I, I saw certain situations arise also within the Methodist, within the United Methodist Church, um, that really was really disturbing to me. Um, and all the leaders would say, no, you know, like nobody wants to speak up against it. So my, I have found that my biggest challenge has been to convince people, A, I'm not crazy. Um, I'm not making this up. You're not making this up. This is really what you're feeling. I mean, it's important for you to speak about it and to name it. Right. Um, um, it's important for us to be able to acknowledge our voice in the process. So empowering uh, people of color to speak up in the church is very difficult. We see it at all churches, um, um, including ours. Um, but it's a key and very important uh, component to help empowering our communities because we're never going to get rid of racism if we're not willing to say, OK, I'm not willing to put up with it. I'm not going to sit through this. You know, you know, this concept that I'm supposed to sit and wait till you change your heart just isn't real. Um, you need to stop it. We need to see more Latin or people of color in leadership. We need to see more celebrations of our culture. Um, and I think this concept of, of um, being quiet is our, to this day, our biggest challenge. Uh, and it's been ingrained in me. I feel guilty sometimes, right? This is a little boy. It's been ingrained in me. Um, but yet, in my pastoral care, I've learned uh, because they can't deal with the hurt themselves as victims of it until they're able to acknowledge it. I appreciate that response. And I do want to get to some of these questions Absolutely. Uh, from our participants. Um, the first one is, would Haitians be included as Latinx? Technically, no. <clears throat> um, um, Definitely Caribbean, right? Caribbean. Um, um, but con um, Haitians have their own Black definition of their identity and are strongly based um, in, the, um, in the French culture and the Creole-speaking culture. Um, but culturally, I don't know what to call us. We're all family, right? I mean, if, if I go to... Uh, it, if I sit down in Haiti and I listen to what the Haitian is singing and speaking, I can so um, identify with it. Um, but traditionally, no. And that's not because of the Latin perspective. That's because of the Haitian experience. Haitians themselves, um, I strongly identify with their Blackness. And it's been my understanding that although many of them love our music and love our people, and here in Orlando definitely have a close association with us, you can go to any Puerto Rican restaurant in Orlando and you go see Haitian families. I mean, there's a strong connection there, but I, I, I think Haitians form their own identity and, and, and rightly so, um, because they are the, the first black nation that stood up and basically fought racism and, and up to this day have paid for that, right? I mean, economically and socially, um, but definitely um, ha they have a strong black identity in their Africanness and in their Haitian Creole culture. Thank you for that response. We have a question from Mary Robertson and she asks, so segregation Latin churches rather than integration such as it can be? Um, maybe you wanna talk a little bit about Latin churches as a form of segregation. What does integration look like into a white denomination? 
Maybe that's what's kind of what she's trying to get at. Okay. Well, you know, Dr. King said the most segregated hour is Sunday morning, right? Um, yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do not only with the injustices that other marginalized populations may feel, but I think it all has to do with culture. Culture is a very big part of it, right? Uh, let's let's since you're all Methodists, let's let's talk about the Methodist experience a little bit. Right. I mean, you can go in Atlanta. I can definitely talk about uh, that experience in Atlanta. And I can go to Impact Church, which um, is a it's a huge uh, United Methodist Church um, and, and predominantly African-American. Um, and I can go to St. Paul Methodist, um, United Methodist um, in downtown where I did my internship. And there's definitely two different styles of worship. Um, and um, so I think that how to bring that together, I don't think our generation has figured it out. I don't think we're anywhere near in figuring it out, right? I love my Spanish praise. I love my alabaré and, you know, Dios vivo and all our praises. And I, I, I love the conga. I, God bless the organ, um, uh, but it doesn't move me like a guitar with a set of congas do, right? So, I, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Candler, but they have a beautiful beautiful organ in the chapel um and after a year of that i was like i like you um but i really need my congas and my guitars and my you know tamparetas and other things we make noise with so I, I think some of it is culture but i i think when can we have integration when we can have huge mega churches um that have senior pastors that are people of color um, and, and large uh, white populations sitting in their churches. I think that's a start. We don't really see that. Um, here in Orlando, we have um, a couple of big mega churches um, here, and they have large Latin-based populations, and they may have one little assistant pastor or associate pastor in the corner who you never see or hear, um, but is mainly led by white men. And I think when we see the inclusion of people of color in the leadership, um, then I think we can start talking about integration. Uh, I think culture becomes important to celebrate and worship, um, and we have to learn how to accept each other's culture. I don't think I'm a baby boomer. I'm pretty sure my generation is nowhere near that. Um, and maybe Gen Z would, you know, would accomplish that in, in, in a better format, in a better way in the future as the future church leaders. I don't know if I answered that question. No, I think that's a great response. I really appreciate the truth in the fact that I don't think it's just your generation, or I think it's also my generation you know, that hasn't been able to integrate this bilingual service, multicultural service. And, you know, I've worked in numerous churches who have attempted. And just, to, just the other day, I was having a conversation with some conference leaders and they said, why don't you just read some books? And it's like, um, this has not been accomplished. The books didn't work. <laughs> right. You know, the books didn't work. And so no, something new has to be formed. And maybe that's, so I appreciate that idea that even for pastors, if they're thinking, oh, all I got to do is start us, you know, have somebody read the scripture in Spanish, or all I have to do is what has been done traditionally, but it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. So we got to try some new things, right? So I appreciate that. And um, if I can just quickly sure. add with that, uh, the whole concept of bilingual ministry is a concept that I, that I, I really love, but it has nothing to do with translation, right? People think that bilingual means that whatever the pastor says in English, there's somebody up there standing, um, translating it into Spanish. And not necessarily. You enter bilingualism when the person who does not speak English can say it in Spanish 
And whether you understand it or not, you celebrate it and you move on. Um, I, I think when we enter into that, because they have been sitting down listening to your English all their lives and they never understood what you meant um, and they've been able to move on. So I, I, I think when we're able to celebrate each other's cultures in that way, then we enter into a bilingual worship service, right? When, 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 a, when a white congregation learns how to sing, alabaré, alabaré, alabaré a mi señor, um, then you're entering into bilingualism because they have been singing, Spanish-speaking populations have been singing how great they, thou art for decades. So when we enter into that, then that's bilingualism. I appreciate that. I appreciate that response. And it's been really my experience in the United Methodist Church. And even at, I went to Duke Divinity, and I'm sure you had similar experiences at Candler. Because, you know, but moving on, we, I want to ask this question from Pastor Lee Hall Perkins. He asks, how, how can we build solidarity in the church among minority groups, particularly Black and Latinx groups, when many old, older Latinx see themselves as white? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I, I think that, so let me tell you something about Latino culture. Um, just because you see it or because you hear it doesn't mean that's what it is. Our culture is a very uh, culture that, um, if I can paraphrase it, if, when you're gone and you're no longer out the room, they know who they are, right? Um, and um, I think integration can begin to happen um, when um, persons feel experienced, uh, feel comfortable sharing who they are. Um, I think um, that coming together and merging together with the older generation uh, uh, becomes uh, imperative um, to the process when those individuals begin to know that you understand their experience, right? So what am I trying to say with that? Um, with the older generation of Hispanic, many of them have come here uh, through an immigrant experience. They have fought for their US citizenship. They have been threatened by it many times. Um, there are days they feel safe. There are days they don't feel safe. Um, and so they have developed a certain way to reacting to the white uh, church um, in order for survival. And I think that um, when they feel that that wall's been torn down, then you're going to start to see um, the Mexican family or the um, El Salvadoran family feel free in expressing themselves. So I think um, to tear down those walls and to find healing from the past, crucial, very, very crucial. I just think it's hard for us at this point where we're at with our divided culture in this country to accomplish that. But definitely, um, by, by, by them being able to sense the feeling that it's okay to express myself, I think that's when you'll start to find integration. Thank you for that response. What I want to do now during this time is I want to offer everybody the respect and the time that if you need to log out at this time, go ahead and, and do so. If it's okay with Professor uh, Pastor Ramos, I would love to keep you on for maybe another 10 minutes. This is, consider this I'm bonus good. footage. Um, but before you do leave, if you need to leave right now, I'll have a couple of announcements I wanna share with you all. One of them is that we are offering a Martin Luther King worship toolkit that you can share with your pastor, you can share with your church. And included in that toolkit is a baptism remembrance liturgy 
for Baptism of the Lord Sunday. And we're going to share those links with you on our follow-up email. You could also find them on our website if you just Google MLK Worship Toolkit, FLUMC, um, and you can have resources for that Sunday morning. And really for the whole month, if you want to expand the conversation in, in the upcoming weeks. Also, I'm in the beginning stages of brainstorming what it would look like to have a racial trauma retreat, a racial trauma retreat. Uh, as I reflected on the past two years of my life, I feel as though I would benefit from a racial trauma retreat. And if you're interested in that conversation, would you also just follow up in the email and contact me? And I'm just kind of dreaming something up at the moment. And we're also hopefully going to offer you opportunities to connect at annual conference so we could all come together and continue these conversations. You know how they're always offering luncheons and all those cool things. So we're going to hope I want to keep that in your kind of a save the date type thing uh, for annual conference. Um, next week, we're hoping to gather with a diverse group of United Methodist Episcopal candidates. Um, and we're going to talk with them about their experience in this year's jurisdictional conference. And so this is a, an idea that was brought up by many members of the Anti-Racist Task Force. So we hope that you can tune in to that um, next week. Um, so with that said, if you all need to go, that's fine. But I want to do want to ask pastors some questions specifically about Generation Z. Um, so pastor, thank you so much for this bonus footage. We promise I'll, I'll get you out of here right before one, I promise. But let's talk a little bit about Generation Z. Uh, let's just first start with some observations. Um, as a professor, what are your observations of Gen Z? Just overall, and then you can transition into the Latinx experience. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, we have just started to see the um, transitioning from the millennial generation to Gen Z in the academic settings. Um, at UCF, um, they are... Um, basically growing every every year um the gen z is basically um those that were born after um, um the new millennials so they're probably at the, the beginning at this point i believe it's 2000 2002 begins to define them so they're persons who are in their early 20s at this point um all the way to the next 20 year period uh so um they they are um, basically um, really looking to be uh, I I don't know if the correct word is label free but definitely to be a more inclusive um, society. Um, I'm beginning to see um, acceptance even this is just really interesting that's new um, even among conservative Christians on conservative groups and by conservative. I'm talking about mainly with evangelical influences in non-denominational circles. Um, even those students who are coming from that experience um, are finding themselves to be more inclusive in their faith, more inclusive in their relationship with their friends, um, more inclusive towards LGBTQ. Um, so if there's anything I could definitely say about that, um, about the Gen Z population, is that they're looking to change. Uh, the problem is that very few of them vote, uh, so we don't see that reflected in the political spectrum yet. We soon will, um, but I think a lot of them are looking to be more inclusive. Um, I think that we have a challenge in terms of spirituality. Most of them are done with us. 
Um, they're definitely um, more into what they define as spirituality. I love it when I tell my, my students, well, there's really no difference between spirituality and religion other than spirituality is a personal religion. And they're like, no, no, they'll like get really upset. I said, okay, it's your world, I'll accept it. Um, but um, um, there, there's definitely a challenge for us as a church in reaching them. So definitely um, a changing community. I, I, I think um, they're beginning to um, challenge racism a lot more. They're beginning to challenge heterosexism and sexism um, and all the other isms um, a lot more. There's a very gender-free uh, movement going on without them, within them. Um, I was really amazed uh, when you see an artist like Bad Bunny, if you're not familiar with him. He's from the reggaeton uh, Latin world. He's actually right now the number one selling artist in the world. Um, his music is being heard in Japan, even in China. I was looking at a documentary recently. Um, he put on a skirt on purpose um, to defend the rights of transgender uh, women in Latin America. And um, he was um, protesting the killing of uh, transgender women of color in this country. So he put a, a dress on, which was, you got to understand that for, we, we were in shock, happy that he did it. Um, but definitely in shocks. But I, I think it doesn't make him gay. It just makes him a part of that generation that's become more inclusive of all people. So if in a nutshell, if I can say anything about them, it's definitely them. I think in the Latinx community, they definitely are not into the gender expression and culture. Um, they don't like Latino. They don't like Latina, <laughs> which is why, I'm, excuse me, on the UCF campus, I'm very careful to use the word Latinx because many of them don't like um, putting, applying gender um, to the culture. Um, and so you're seeing them put an X even when you say um, any type of ending, rather not a Mexicano or Puerto Rican, but to put um, a Puerto Rican X, and, you know, it's different. Uh, uh, so um, definitely a challenge towards gender. I appreciate that. You know, I, I work with Gen Z too, yeah. and I agree, they are inclusive, very gender inclusive as well, and open to conversations about anti-racism and cultural competency. But here's a question for you. I feel like this is a question we get as pastors going through the process. What is a growth area for Generation Z? To go out and get a job. Oh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> what, what'd you say? They can't get a job, would you say? No, to go out and go get a job. Go get a job, okay. <laughs> um, a, a growth area, I think. Okay, so here's the interesting thing, right, that research is showing right now with millennials. Um, when we look at what defined the millennial generation, we discovered later on um, through research that it was only a small percentage of millennials that were expressing this anti-racism ideology. And that um, um, as millennials began to express themselves and we identified them as being more against racism, and um, we began to do research with them, we started to find out that what we were hearing were those who had academic voices. And those individuals that were not in higher education and were basically the blue collar millennials struggling to survive uh, were having just as much racist attitudes as their parents. Um, and so that became a challenge, um, maybe not as bad um, as their parents, right? Uh, but um, definitely there were traits up there in which they didn't support affirmative action. 
uh, research showed that they didn't um, support inclusions of blacks in college recruitment or in any type of job recruitment. Um, they were they were embracing the lingo um, bought by other generations that black and brown people are taking my jobs. Um, so that was interesting, right? That took a lot of us by surprise. Um, and so I, I think that we don't really know what Gen Z's areas of growth are yet because I think we're only hearing the academic voices of Gen Z. Um, I, 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 I trust, uh, as I, I, this is anecdotal from my own experience, um, I think that I see it a lot um, in Gen Z uh, simply when you see straight couples hanging out with gay couples. That's anecdotal, that's an observation. Um, you see a lot of younger, Latinx people embracing black culture. Um, and so that's anecdotal. But I think what actually their areas of growth, I think at this point, um, is hard for us to tell uh, because we don't really know much about them. All the research that is being conducted on them is basically conducted on what's coming through academic voices, which are settings where you and I work at. Uh, so we don't fully know if that's the way the whole population works yet. I don't know if I answered your question correctly. No, I appreciate your response. I guess we're still learning, right? We're still learning. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really hard to tell where they're going to go, uh, but there's definitely evidence that it's different. Like, and as, as as most research, not a lot of research, but no, I won't say as most research, but I would say oftentimes the loudest voices are voices from academia. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we miss kind of the blue collar, kind of, like, in my perspective, the real world, right? The real world, yeah, what people are yeah. going through. Yeah. Um, you spoke a little bit about this surviving religious abuse mm -hmm. um, workshop that you had for Gen Z. Can you talk a little bit of, about that experience? Absolutely. Um, I, I in, in my pastoral counseling, um, I kept coming across, I'm also a clinical social worker. Um, it's, but it's very important for me to separate the two. I don't go to my congregation and try to be a clinical therapist to them. I refer them out um, to a professional licensed person. I don't touch that because I, I don't believe I should mix the two. Um, um, and in my pastoral counseling, I've discovered the incredible amount of individuals who come to me um, showing signs and traits of abuse. Um, let, let me give you a quick example. Um, you know, um, um, Mary Bowen, in terms of Bowen's theory of um, family functioning, talks about this concept of the differentiation of ego development, right? Or the whole concept of that in a nutshell. The more the individual is able to separate themselves from the hurt of the family, the better they are able to flourish in society. The more they're more integrated, um, the more they subject themselves to abuse. Um, in future cycles of life. So that's a big sign of abuse that we see conforming um, to the family secret of who's abusing them, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole separate topic. But anyway, the whole concept is that in my years of working with survivors of abuse in the church, when I came to talk to LGBTQ members who were coming to me for pastoral care, which is really ministry, um, when they started coming to me for that, I couldn't help but notice the same trauma symptoms of abuse in them because of the religious experience they had, right? This whole thing of ego mass differentiation, destruction in their lives, um, their inability 
to um, move themselves from the trauma and putting themselves in situations of being re-victimized in trauma over and over and over again. Um, when, you, when you go to meet with them in counseling, you find out that a lot of it is related to their experience in the church. And so it, it, it led me in this whole concept that I'm right now about to hopefully apply with God's help next year, not this academic year, next year, I hope to apply for a sabbatical in which I can go and research this more in Latin American-based communities. Um, but this whole concept that LGBTQ people um, have survived emotional, um, spiritual, and at some point even physical abuse um, um, in the religious circles and are now walking around with the trauma is one witness why I see the LGBTQ community rejecting the church. They're rejecting the church a lot of times out of hurt. Um, I, I live in this interesting world, right? To the gay community, um, I'm too Christian. And to the Christian community, I'm too gay. So I'm like in this middle world of not knowing how to bring the two together because when I go to um, members of my community who love God, who want to go to church, who wish they can go to church, um, they cannot physically get themselves to walk into a church um, and feel totally accepted for who they are. So they feel they had to decide. Um, that has led to trauma, that has led to issues of addiction, um, that have led to issues of self-mutilation and abuse, suicide, um, high levels of depression, high levels of anxiety, family separation, um, inability to go home for Christmas. All these different issues have developed and risen. Um, as a result of religious abuse. So I, 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 you know, I really feel the Lord has given me ministry in this area. I have, I have learned to um, um, meet with individuals surviving this, pray with them, comfort them, but also refer them to a therapist to do, um, to complete a therapeutic process to help them find a space of healing because they've been physically abused, emotionally abused, and spiritually abused, if I can use that word. So. Thank you so much for sharing that workshop that you led, and thank you so much for the work that you are participating in, and you know, God has called you to, and I know that God is using you to bring about a lot of healing in a lot of different communities, and so thank you so much. Uh, I feel as though I've learned a lot today. I hope everybody has learned a lot today. Um, but I have been just thoroughly impressed with you, Professor, and thankful for everything you've shared today. And I really hope that this is not the last time you and I work together. I Absolutely hope you, not. <laughs> I hope you come to the new space on campus. You know, I we're opening up. We're having a ribbon cutting ceremony here. And just we'll have coffee and I'll just show you my dreams and my hopes for that new Absolutely. location that we're opening up. I um, love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any, any last words you want to share with us before we close today? Just, just thank you uh, for the invitation and thank you for being here. Um, you, the fact that you're here is reflective of your love for Christ and your love for the church. And I, I pray God will richly bless all your ministries um, and that we will continue to go forth as one people before God's presence. Amen. That's the Puerto Rican Pentecost for me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> amen. 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 Thank you to everybody who joined us and we will see you in next month's Table Talk. Amen. Thank you.